0: Let's pray. Lord God, grant unto us ears to hear your word, minds to know your will, and a heart that longs to serve you and love you in godliness and truth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> when you read the four gospel accounts and indeed the book of Acts, one of the things that's immediately striking is the miracles that are happening And what's striking about them is not simply that they're extraordinary. By definition, that's what miracles are. What's striking about them is how commonly they occur. It's not the sort of thing we typically see at St. Augustine's in Burrell, or most other churches that I'm aware of. For some, this is clear evidence that we've been abandoned by God in general and the Holy Spirit in particular. If for Jesus and the apostles, miracles were commonplace, then shouldn't we expect the same? Well, that's a good question, and it needs to be looked at carefully. But before we get too self-absorbed, it's always better to look first at what the Scriptures say. And when we do that, we find that miracles surrounding Jesus were quite common. But in the epistles and in the first century church, they're not so common at all. Not very different to our own experience There's plenty of examples of those who are sick and dying. And the call is not for instant miracles, but for fervent prayers. If the Holy Spirit has abandoned us, then seemingly he's abandoned the first century church even before the apostles died. And I don't believe that for a moment. So what's the explanation? Well, Peter tells us in verse 12 of Acts chapter 3, that miracles have nothing to do with our own personal power or godliness. Miracles don't testify to our spirituality, but rather, they testify to the message of the salvation. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, God testified to the message of salvation by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. And Peter makes the same point at Pentecost. He says that Jesus, the Messiah, was accredited by God by miracles and wonders and signs. So it seems clear that miracles are not a testimony to our spirituality or godliness, but rather they're a testimony to God's power, to God's Messiah, to God's message of salvation, and now to the authority that God has given to his apostles. His messengers. And if that's so, then we already have all the testimony that we need. We have confirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the apostles are his messengers, and the gospel is his message. And what we don't need is a new confirmation. We don't need a new message. We don't need a new miracle. For what we have in the New Testament is all sufficient. It's all of the message that God needs to bring repentance and faith and salvation to completion. So we can be totally confident that what we have in the writings of Moses and the prophets and now in Jesus and the apostles is God's final reveal word to us until the coming of Jesus in glory. Our confidence is not in miracles but in the living and abiding Word of God. Now, when we do read God's Word, one of the mistakes that we easily make when trying to understand the Bible is that we confuse the indicative and the imperative, the descriptive and the prescriptive. Now, the indicative is simply a statement of what is, about what happened. It's not a command, it's a description. It's not a statement of what should be. It simply says what is or what was. But an imperative, now that is a command. It's not a suggestion or simply a description. It prescribes what we have to do. And the good news is that the New Testament Greek makes it very clear what's indicative and what's imperative. It's built into their spelling and grammar. But sometimes it's less than obvious when we read it in English. So we can make the mistake of reading what's simply a description and treating it as a command. We can make the mistake of reading what Jesus and the apostles did with miracles and assume that we're commanded to do likewise. If Peter commanded lame beggars to rise up and walk, then shouldn't we be doing the same? What's wrong with us if we don't? or we can't, well, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with us at all. Because what Peter did is indicative of what happened. It's not a command of what should be. Miracles happen because they attest to the authenticity and the authority of Jesus, the apostles and the gospel. The imperative is not that we should expect miracles, but that we should submit ourselves to what they testify to and that is the authenticity of the Gospel message and the authority of God's Word. Now, there's also another way in which we misunderstand the indicative and the imperative, and that can often happen when we talk about the Gospel. It's not simply that we confuse the two, but rather that we go straight to the imperative, not straight to the command, straight to the prescription, and we forget about the indicative. That is, we rightly present the gospel as a command to repent and believe. But we wrongly give the gospel no historical basis, no real reason to repent and believe, no clear understanding of the nature of the gospel, and no clear understanding of the gospel's implications. Let me explain what I mean. If we went straight to the imperative of repent and believe, and the obvious question is, well, why? Why should I believe in Jesus, of whom I have little knowledge or understanding? Why do, we, why do I even need to trust him? So far, I've been happy enough without him. Well, these are good questions, and Peter preempts them with a series of indicatives, a series of factual information concerning Jesus and the gospel. In verse 12, he points to the miracle of the man crippled from birth, the miracle that they just witnessed. And he says that this is the work of God. Stand up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then from verse 13 he indicates that this same Jesus was by them delivered to be killed, but by God he was glorified and raised from the dead. From verse 17, we're told that what they had witnessed is exactly what the prophets had foretold, saying that Christ would suffer. It's only after a series of indicatives that we get the imperative. And the imperative is in verse 19. Repent then and turn to God. So the answer to the question, why should we repent and turn to God, is clear at least to the Jews, it's because Jesus is the Messiah. He's foretold by the prophets. He's the one who would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the holy and righteous one who suffered death for our sins and was raised to life and glory by God the Father. So the indicatives give us real reason to repent and believe. But they also make clear the nature of the gospel. You see, the gospel from first to last is a work of God. The crippled beggar was made strong through faith in the name of Jesus. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had glorified his servant Jesus, the Holy and Righteous One. The author of life was raised by God from the dead. What was foretold by the prophets was fulfilled by God that Christ would suffer. Repentance then turning to God, therefore, is a response to what's already been done by God. Repentance is not meeting God halfway. It's not like we can say, well, God's done his bit and now the rest is up to us. It's not so. Repentance is doing an about-face only to find that God's right there and he's in your face. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Well, he repented. He turned to come home. And when his father saw him, well, his father didn't wait for him to come. His father didn't meet him halfway at the gate. His father ran to him and met him just where he was. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him put his best robe on his son and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then he called all to rejoice with him and to celebrate. And God does the same for all who repent and turn to him. So we shouldn't think that the gospel is a call for us to clean up our lives so that God might deem us worthy of his favour. If we thought that, We'd never receive his favour. If we thought that, then repentance would cease to be the response of our heart to God's love and mercy, and it would become a gritty determination that will wear down our body and our soul and our spirit. A soulless determination that that would leave us despairing in our failure or proud in our feeble success. See, truth is, repentance is as much a gift from God as is faith and salvation. And the Gospel calls us to repentance so that in the present we might receive the gift of sins forgiven, wiped out and nailed to the cross. And that in the future we might receive the promise of times of refreshing, the opportunity to hasten the day of Christ. For God the Father will again send Christ when the time comes for everything to be restored. And the salvation of every living soul, yours and mine included, will bring that day closer and closer. Now so far the message of the Gospel has been all good news. But it would be a huge mistake if we thought that the message was just one possibility among many. For though the imperative to repent and believe the gospel is entirely inclusive of whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, there's no exceptions to that. It's also entirely exclusive of those who do not listen to everything that Jesus tells us. As Peter says from verse 22, that Jesus is the prophet, which, which we read about today in Deuteronomy, of whom Moses speaks. He's the one whom the Lord God has raised up. We must listen to everything he tells us. And anyone who does not listen to him will be cut off from among his people. Now Peter here, he's not simply saying that you have to believe in Jesus to be a Christian. I mean, that's self-evident, that Christians believe in the Christ. He's saying that you have to believe in Jesus to belong to God. And if that's not clear, he spells it out in the next chapter. You see, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, up to this point in Acts, the church was having favour with all the people. But these exclusive claims of the gospel, well, they meant that Peter and John ended up in jail. And though one day you or I may conceivably end up in jail for making the same claim, in the short term at least, such a claim will gain you few friends. What it will gain you is the scorn of a culture that simultaneously denies all manner of truth and yet affirms all manner of nonsense. And then it gives the whole thing the veneer of virtue and calls it tolerance. But far from being tolerant, it's entirely intolerant of the Christian gospel. And if we remain faithful to the gospel as we must, then increasingly we will bear the scorn of a cultural worldview that's not simply different or indifferent to us but hostile. So be ready for that, and don't let fear leave us mute. As Peter says in his first epistle, he says, Always be willing to suffer for doing and saying what's right. And if we do, we'll be blessed. Let's not fear what others fear, and let's not be frightened. But in our hearts, always set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us. To give a, a reason for the hope that we have. But let's do it with gentleness and respect. Let's keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against our good behaviour in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to be confident of the message of the Gospel. It's been confirmed and accredited by God by signs and wonders and miracles and it's been attested to by the Apostles and the Prophets. And it's good news. It's news that salvation is not only God's gift to us, but it's also God's work for us from beginning to end, from first to last. And because the divine indicatives of what God has done and what God has promised to do are so extraordinarily radical, then we should expect the divine imperatives of repentance and faith to be no less radical and no less extraordinary. You see, salvation is never merely a veneer, a, a renovation, a, a minor adjustment. Salvation is always a transformation. And Sometimes that transformation is relatively slow and sometimes it's really sudden. But always it's a qualitative and a radical change. So, expect to see that in your own life and in the lives of all who call upon Christ's name. So, declare the gospel with confidence. Like Peter, be opportunistic and bold. Share God's word at every opportunity with great patience and careful instruction. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching. So, keep your head in every situation. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For in keeping the faith and fighting the good fight, we know that there's stored up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will award us on that day. Not only us, but all who long for his appearing. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, that your power, your glory, and your mighty works testify to our Saviour and his saving message of the Gospel. Thank you that the message of salvation is a declaration of your work from first to last, and a command for us to take hold of that which you offer to us as a gift. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the promise that Christ shall return in glory to restore all things according to your purpose and glory. Give to us, O Lord, confidence to declare the whole counsel of salvation, boldness to declare your your word in and out of season, courage to suffer for the sake of the gospel, joy in knowing that our names are written in the palm of your hand, and hope as we wait for that glorious day of Christ, and so shall we be ever with our Lord and Saviour. Amen.